As we see, what sells at auctions, what sells privately, the works of Basquiat are unaffordable, right, for 99.9% of the population of the world. We can't afford it, but people want to have part of Basquiat in their life. It's like buying postcards in a museum. It could be meaningful, and it is meaningful. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Today, Jean-Michel Basquiat is unquestionably one of the most recognizable and beloved artists on the planet. A native New Yorker of Haitian and Puerto Rican descent, Basquiat first attracted attention as a teenage graffiti writer in the late 1970s before rapidly transitioning into the role of international sensation in the newly glamorous, increasingly global gallery circuit of the 1980s. Although the main draw was his inimitable artistic approach, an instantly recognizable style merging cryptic symbology with antic expressionistic figures, Basquiat quickly became a downtown celebrity of the First Order, walking the runway, collaborating with musicians, and famously, dating Madonna. Tragically, Basquiat died from an overdose at age 27. His short artistic career make it all the more remarkable that his work and his visage seem to be everywhere in the 21st century. Of course, I'm not just talking about his actual paintings, which reliably sell up to $100 million at auction. Licensed reproductions of Basquiat's work now fuel a wide range of products and branding opportunities, from affordable t-shirts and keychains to an unprecedented collaboration with the NBA's Brooklyn Nets, resulting in a Basquiat-inspired home court design and team uniform. But as licensing has become a lucrative revenue stream for contemporary artists and estates, it has also intensified age-old criticisms about the corrosive powers of commercialization on creative integrity. The approach taken by the Basquiat estate has made Jean-Michel's work one of the focal points in this tension, especially after the opening of King Pleasure, a major exhibition about the artist's life and work now on view in Manhattan. To sort through this tangled web, Artnet News art business editor Tim Schneider spoke to market guru Katja Gazakina about her recent report into Basquiat and the increasingly big business of artwork licensing. Take a listen. Katja Kazakina, thanks for coming back on The Art Angle. I'm so glad to be here, Tim. Before we get into the other questions, I actually just want to ask you something off the cuff, which is that we're in the middle of this two-week New York auction week, and there's a bunch of Basquiat lots that didn't happen, and then there are some that are coming up next week that are supposed to happen, and you wrote this piece on Basquiat licensing. Do you ever feel like your life is just an immersive Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition? (laughs) Yes. It's a life imitating art, art imitating life. I am immersed into the biography of Basquiat which I actually quoted in the story that we're going to discuss. So it's exciting to see so much happening. And in fact, having two exhibitions in New York right now of Jean-Michel Basquiat's work puts into really interesting context what's coming up at auction. For now, let's focus on this really fascinating piece that you wrote about licensing and the Basquiat estate and all these kinds of things. So the piece centers on specifically the licensing and merchandising around this Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibition called King Pleasure. Can you just tell us what King Pleasure is and why it's different from the dozens and dozens of other Basquiat shows that have been done before? The main difference is that King Pleasure is organized by the family of Jean-Michel Basquiat. His younger sisters, Lisanne Basquiat and Janine Harville, put together 
more than 190 original works, a lot of them paintings, as well as all kinds of ephemera, things that were in his studio. They reconstructed his studio as it was on Great Jones Street. It's kind of like immersive Basquiat in a way, but all of the works there are original. And a lot of them have never been seen on public view. So it's a very special kind of moment. Right. So it's very much a kind of full picture of who Basquiat is from the people who knew him best. But then you get through all of this really amazing biographical, personal and artistic material. And then there's also a gift shop which is full of merchandise blessed by the estate. Can you just give us a sense of what types of products are on offer there and like what kind of price ranges we're talking about for them? What isn't on offer there? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like everything and anything from candles and t-shirts and hoodies and shorts and books and dog coats and AirPod cases. I don't think there's an umbrella, but there is like, skateboards. There's an alpaca blanket. I mean, there's a coach purse and there are postcards, of course. There are like figurines. There's something for your child and something for your dog and something for your husband. And I kind of wanted to buy a lot of things in there. (laughs) Well, and you specifically asked, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, about the Basquiat Barbie. Oh my God, don't get me started. (laughs) But they didn't have it though, right? They did not have the Basquiat Barbie, but guess who has it? I don't know who. Me. (laughs) (laughs) I have the Basquiat Barbie. Okay, Tim, so just like, just take a step back about this whole question of licensing, right? About a year ago, I started noticing on Instagram just people actually complaining about all these different things that the state is doing with licensing. And one of the first things that I noticed was Basquiat Barbie and basically how awful it is that there is such a thing and how it's a commercialization of his legacy and all kinds of comments around it. Right now I have a seven-year-old daughter. She was six years old at the time. She obviously loves Barbies. While I was kind of sympathetic in some way too. And I could understand why people who are sort of purists of Basquiat, where they were coming from, I also thought, wow, like how cool it is to get my daughter Basquiat Barbie. I'm writing about Basquiat. I just wrote about his like $90 million sale at Christie's. Let me get the Basquiat Barbie. And so I went on Amazon and bought it. It was very expensive. It was $90. I didn't tell my husband because I knew he would try to talk me out of it. <laughs> so the Basquiat Barbie came. She has dreadlocks. You know, she's obviously brown. She wears this pantsuit, which is designed as like a papuri of different Basquiat imagery. All of it is to say that a few months later, my cousin had her daughter's birthday. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get her Basquiat Barbie too. So I got her the Basquiat Barbie. And then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to get another one to have. Who knows? Maybe it's going to go through the roof and I don't know, in 10 years, maybe it will be an investment. I haven't unwrapped it and it's sitting on my desk. Last time I checked, it was $260. Wow. I didn't realize you had this whole sideline as a Barbie flipper. This is like a fascinating window into a part of you I didn't know about. (laughs) I haven't flipped it yet. It's sitting on my desk. Well, I guess this also reveals a part of the reason that there were no Basquiat Barbies available in the King Plush gift shop is because you already have all of them. 
I cornered the market. <laughs> anyway, but it was an interesting kind of personal story, but it also kind of got me thinking about the issue of what does licensing do for an artist's legacy? Yeah, and that's, I think, the central question of your piece. And you nodded to the tension already a little bit by referencing the complaints that you were seeing from people about the Basquiat Barbie. Now, for decades and decades, the standard position from a big chunk of the art world on this topic of licensing has gone something like this. Basically, if you splash out reproductions of a great artist's work onto T-shirts and keychains and sneakers and phone cases and a whole bunch of other affordable projects, it tarnishes the actual work and the actual legacy of the artist by turning them into basically a corporate mascot or a pitchman or something like that. What's the Basquiat Estate's counter to this line of thinking? There was multifold, I would say. I spoke with the sisters and it was really interesting to hear what they had to say because on the one hand, they see it as a way to maintain his legacy, actually, to kind of spread the word, right? Because as we see what sells at auctions, what sells privately, the works of Basquiat are unaffordable, right? For 99.9% of the population of the world. We can't afford it, but people want to have part of Basquiat in their life. It's like buying postcard in a museum. It could be meaningful and it is meaningful. And I think that that's sort of one reason they want to spread sort of that Basquiat gospel in a way and make it available to people who cannot afford the paintings, the drawings in any of his art that sells for tens and tens of millions of dollars and into the hundreds of millions. And then there is also the issue that for them to maintain the estate and all the works to put an exhibition like that, obviously it costs money. So they're saying, we don't want to sell his works. We don't want to dilute the estate. We don't want to give the works into the hands of dealers or collectors who could resell them or whatever they may end up doing. And so for them to do these licensing deals, which I think are probably quite lucrative on some level, of course, they're not as lucrative as selling a painting, you know, I'm sure, but it's a way for them to generate money so that they don't have to sell the works. Right. And that's a fundamental difference in the way that the art market really began and worked primarily for a long time, where it was all the sale of these very rare, very expensive objects to a very select group of people. And now we've moved much further in the other direction where there is a kind of mass market play that you can make, but it runs totally counter to the way that more old school thinking would compel you to behave. So just this really fascinating sort of push-pull that's happening in the market. Absolutely. You know, I think that it's the push-pull that's visible, not just in the licensing, but just in so many other areas of the market, right? Because there is a new generation of collectors, of buyers, of art enthusiasts who are coming into the market or in the periphery. And they have very different values. They have very different historic knowledge or perspective, and they want things they want. You know, again, to maybe connect it to what's happening in the market at auction this month. I've written a lot about Asian collectors buying art. And 10 years ago, Asian collectors were buying the most expensive works of art at auction, the abstract paintings by Rothko, Picasso's, the Gauguin's, whatever. 
the Asian collectors of today buy hot new artists and they send them into the millions, but they're not bidding on Rothko's or at least they weren't last night. You know, so there is a shift, I think, just in general, just like a very interesting moment where one generation is aging out and another generation is coming in and getting strained. And so I think the licensing in a way is part of it, right? Definitely. Auction houses now sell skateboards, right? And sneakers designed by artists and artists collaborate with brands, you know, on all kinds of merchandise now. Right, and that's a shift that's been happening incrementally for a long time. I mean, Gagosian has a shop that they run that is just for these kinds of licensed products. And they also, I think, have limited edition art books and maybe a few sort of lower level artworks. But yeah, it's like that's where I first saw Basquiat skateboard when I started looking into this was in the Gagosian shop. But so does MoMA and so Mm -hmm. does the Met. And so does pretty much every major museum. So When I started reporting the story, I realized that this is not like an isolated incident, really, for case study. It's really very much part of our culture. Major, major museums are expanding their participation in these licensing world. Another important facet of this conversation, too, I think, is the influence of street artists and how they have influenced this conversation around both building an audience on their own and then funneling that into collaborations and licensed products. Like cause, right? Yeah, exactly. Cause is a perfect example of that. This is a guy who started off as a street artist and then started making these final figurines that became very popular. Now he's done as many collaborations for licensed products as practically anybody out there, I think, at least in terms of living artists. Bathing Ape, Supreme, Nike, Comme des Garçons, Jun Takahashi, all of these really very desirable brands. And he's just everywhere. And also like Uniqlo, right? Very yeah. much down-to-earth brand. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And so he's definitely somebody who has recognized the potential value of this for the type of career that he wants to build. And it's not like he's just stayed on the totally populist side of the divide either. I mean, he now shows with Skarstedt, which is like, I mean, I don't know, Katya, how would you describe Skarstedt like in the gallery hierarchy? Well, the current show is Francis Bacon, right? So right. <laughs> 79th Street, like off Madison Avenue between 5th and Madison next door to Aquavella. So very blue chip. And it's fascinating because there was so much slack, right? The art world really didn't want to embrace him, but they almost couldn't because his following in the world is so massive precisely because of this collaboration, because of his street cred and Asia just loves his work. Regular people who know him through objects and products. So it could be really powerful. Totally. And it's an inversion, really, of how this used to work. It used to be that you came up in the proper art world. And then if you were the right kind of artist, you could branch outside to a larger audience through these types of licensing deals or other collaborations or whatever else. Now it, you can do it the opposite way. It can be an outside-in approach where you start off and you build this wider audience 
through these types of collaborations, partly. And then if you decide, hey, what I really want is to show in a blue chip gallery or have museum exhibitions or whatever else, like you can actually make that transition. It happened. <laughs> yeah, right. It, right. It's really extraordinary. I want to go back really quickly to another side of this conversation with the Basquiat State. You mentioned that Jean-Michel's sisters said that part of the reason that they are really leaning into the licensing side of things is that they would much rather do that than have to sell the actual works that the estate owns. Just as a point of clarification, has the estate ever sold works that it owns in the past? Yes. And in fact, one of those sales was fairly recent. In 2018, the estate sold a painting from 1984. It was called Flexible at Phillips. It sold for $45.3 million. And the buyer was billionaire collector David Geffen. And then they, since they've sold smaller, maybe less valuable pieces at the moment, but also they've been working a lot with Phillips. Got it. And are they working with anyone on the licensing side of things, or is it just the estate doing this all on their own? Yes. So the estate is working with David Stark on these licensing deals to help them find appropriate partners. Okay. So this is basically a professional who is geared towards this side of the market, the specialty thing that the estate is working with. And what do you think? it says about the way that this whole licensing conversation is evolving, that we're now getting to a point where artists are saying like, you know what, there's just somebody else that I can work with on this. Maybe I don't need to do everything through my gallery. I think it's just the market, maybe it's becoming more efficient and more businesslike. This is serious money. We're talking about millions of dollars. So it can be someone who kind of just swings it. They need to work with professionals who know how this is done, who know where these deals are made. You know, galleries are focused on cultivating artists' careers, on selling art, on building relationships with the museums and foundations, institutions, on promoting artists' work. This is a little bit of a slightly different facet of an artist's career that I think is building out right now, basically, as we speak. But it needs a different skill set than a gallery, don't you think? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right, because we've just moved beyond this model where the gallery did everything. You need somebody who actually knows about licensing to handle the licensing, because all due respect to, say, I don't know, David Zwerner or Yvonne Worth, whatever, it's like these are not people who are dealing with the vagaries of a good deal for licensing a t-shirt to Uniqlo looks like. But you know what, Tim? I think that it's not inconceivable that as mega galleries expand and add new services and kind of turn into like almost these boutique operations that are beyond the gallery, I can imagine David Zwerner hiring a licensing expert so that they could do this in-house. That's not an inconceivable thing to me because right now, for example, they work with Artist Rights Society. An Artist Rights Society actually has a team that handles licensing. They manage copyright for 122,000 artists worldwide. 
and their licensing teams, three, four people, they focus just on that. And they go to like Las Vegas, to these trade shows with companies like Disney and HBO. And they build these bridges between artists, their estates and these mega brands. I think you're absolutely right about that too. And so this kind of specialization seems like it would just be natural that eventually we're going to get to a point where, yeah, a gallery has an in-house person who specializes in this precisely because they don't want the artist to have to go anywhere else. Like, as you're saying, it's a service that the gallery can provide. Especially the more lucrative it becomes. Totally. This is not really about the creation of new work. And that's another, I guess, aspect of this, why corporations and brands like to collaborate with artists. It's just great marketing. But for artists, it's a great way to reach much, much wider audience. And if we think that one of the biggest obstacles and challenges of the art market is the scale, then what better than this, right? It's like why auction houses through online sales, they are able to really reach a much broader audience and how they've been building it out. And then once these people are captured as clients on a lower price point level, then they can cultivate them and build them into connoisseurs of whatever with licensing and with objects that I think group of people is even larger, I mean, considerably. Anyone can buy, you know, a postcard, right? Or a candle, but then you fall in love with the artist. It means something personal to you. It's just about the scale in a way. There is a way in which it is a real sustainability boon for the artists themselves too, because having to create a really good new painting can take a lot of time. And as an artist, you only benefit from selling it the one time. I mean, as we've talked about ad nauseum in other contexts, especially right now, we've got auction week and you see these works, whether they're by Basquiat or by any number of other artists, they're being sold and the artist doesn't see any of those resale profits, no matter how high they go. So the artist only makes money when they're selling new work, unless they have these other revenue streams like licensing. Exactly, because they own the copyright to their work and its reproduction and the dissemination. So potentially, even when the work is sold, they can continue to benefit from it, just on the retail side, essentially. Outside of King Pleasure, the estate's most talked about licensing episode came last fall when a 1982 Basquiat painting titled Equals Pie was featured in a TV spot for Tiffany and Company that starred Beyonce and Jay-Z. And the painting itself is, in a lot of ways, a really classic Basquiat. It has the signature combination of cryptic scrawled text and the mask-like faces and his different symbols, and they're all against this big field of blue. So first off, why was there some controversy around the ad to begin with? Because in the campaign, one of the top executives called it Tiffany Blue, basically suggesting that Basquiat, during his lifetime, was using a pigment known as Tiffany Blue, and that made 
all the people who knew him or people who worked with him, who mixed his paints, who stretched his canvases, really angry. And just so we're doing our journalistic duty here, the Tiffany executive in question was Alexander Arnaud. And he told an interviewer that the color blue that Basquiat used so prominently in the painting was, quote, so specific that it has to be some kind of homage, unquote, to Tiffany Blue. Yeah, well, they had to take it back. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the people who knew Basquiat very well and worked with them were not particularly happy about that implication. No, they were not happy. And I think that that's the legacy issue, right? I mean, it's just an accuracy issue. But it's so easy, right? It's so easy to misrepresent. It looks like it could be Tiffany Blue. Why not? Yeah, and it gets into this gray area where if you're an executive at a major fashion or luxury company and you're just thinking of the material used in your TV spot as fodder that you paid for that you can kind of talk about however you want. Like you're just instrumentalizing it for the company. You can't just like throw off, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure that this was an homage to my company and this iconic color that we've got. It doesn't really work that way. So it really throws everything off balance in terms of just, I think the respect that artists rightfully want for the work that they do. It's one thing to use the painting that I think the family owns in the ad. And the ad obviously was beautiful and very sexy. And I think it's just like they want to be like so closely associated with this artist, with the artist's legacy, with his work, with his allure, that they kind of went one step too far, not just by having access to the work, and aligning the work with the brand, with Tiffany, but actually suggesting that the artist was thinking of the brand in making the work. Exactly. You know, in this case, it just wasn't true. I think that this is part of the reason why this subject is so controversial, because the instances that tend to stick out in people's minds are when things go off the rails like this the way artists think about it and society thinks about it licensing an artist and it is changing in this moment then there is this tension yeah it's much easier to be able to say all instances of this are bad and we should not do them than it is to really think through the details of it and say well maybe there's good versions of this and bad versions of this. And once you start having those conversations, I think it gets more interesting, but it also gets much more complicated. You know, what was very interesting for me to learn in my reporting of this piece is that when I talked to the Warhol Foundation with the Artist Rights Society about their licensing with the sisters as well of Basquiat, they say no to a lot more things. And the Warhol Foundation told me some of their most important decisions are about what they are not doing licensing with. So they say no a lot more than they say yes. Obviously, we just don't see that. I'm sure that there are plenty of ideas that they get that are just out and out terrible, and there's no question. They don't have to hesitate for two seconds to be like, no, there's no way we're ever doing this. But 
I think probably more often than not, it's a longer conversation and it gets into all these complications of, well, what's going too far? What are the parameters that we can put on this that might allow us to both produce something that will get, in this case, Jean-Michel's legacy out there to more people who wouldn't have access to buying the painting or maybe even going to a museum or a gallery show or whatever else. And how far do you go? Well, for some people, clearly Basquiat Barbie was that line right. too. <laughs> Not for me. Right, right. And I just want to put a little postscript on this whole Tiffany conversation because I didn't know this. I just found it out when I was doing a little background research for this episode. But did you know that Tiffany, after that whole blow up with the actual TV spot, that they made an advent calendar of the same painting? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, they did a limited edition advent calendar. They made 24 wooden boxes with little drawers for items that you would have in a normal advent calendar. But it's basically like a reproduction of the painting. And it cost $150,000. Wow. Yeah. We should find out how many sold. We should. On the day when Warhol's Marilyn portrait was coming up at Christie's. And there was a lot of anticipation and a lot of hype, I would say. Like it would sell for 500 million, 300 million, crazy, crazy numbers. And with fees, it sold for $195 million. I was talking to my source and he said, oh, look at this. And he pulls this box and he says, these are Warhol shoes. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, these are, I think, Salvatore Ferragamo shoes. They're like splattered with paint, green and pink and blue. And they're known as Warhol shoes. And he's like, maybe I'll wear them today. And then he's like, well, maybe I won't. And then I realized like those are collectible items for this person. So it's not like he's wearing it, but it's like my third Basquiat Barbie, right? Like I'm keeping it wrapped on the shelf, <laughs> but it's just like another example. And I looked up how much money they generate through licensing because they have to report it in their 990s because they're nonprofit. And I was surprised the last year that it was available was $3.2 million. That was for the fiscal year that ended in 2021 in April. And then pre-pandemic, it was $10.7 million. So paintings by Warhol obviously sell for a lot more than the totality of these licensing agreements. Right. At the same time, if you were, I don't know what the equivalent totals are for the Basquiat estate, but I'm just thinking back to Basquiat lots that were going to be offered at Christie's this week. And there was a sculpture that was being estimated to go for between four to six million dollars. So if you're able to, as the estate, do licensing deals for three point seven million dollars, ten million dollars, whatever, that is the equivalent to actually selling one of the paintings that you don't want to have to sell. Christie's has been projecting this image of Marilyn onto Rockefeller Center. I'm sure that's a licensing deal or yeah. some kind of a copyright deal, right? I would imagine that they would have to get, at the very least, permission from 
the foundation for that. Because as you're saying, just because they have the ability to offer the painting for sale, that doesn't mean that they own the underlying copyright, which is what you need if you're going to broadcast an image of it anywhere. Exactly. And I'm sure it costs a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of these deals with luxury retailers for products that are going to cost a lot of money. I think that's the other side that's interesting about this. A lot of the resistance to licensing comes from the products that are really for everybody, as you're saying, a postcard, a t-shirt, an iPhone case. But then there's this other tier of fashion collaborations or jewelry collaborations or whatever else. And that's Speaking to a very different audience. Artists are collaborating in artist estates with kind of a luxury, more exclusive products. When I spoke with the Artist Rights Society about this issue, one example they gave me was in 2020, this luxury fashion brand, Chloe, designed tops and tote bags and I think sweaters, which were adorned with the images by Sister Corita Kent. She was a nun and a pop artist, but she's not a household name or a famous brand, but it's a very cool work. In this case, a very famous, well-known fashion brand wanted to align itself with this artist and her story and her imagery. So it's not just household names, which I think is very interesting. Or Faith Ringgold, right? An artist with a solo exhibition at the new museum, which is acclaimed and beloved, right? Many collaborations with brands like Vans, you know, you can buy them at the Museum of Modern Art in their design store, you know, things like that. Right. And Faith Ringgold, for example, it's elder stateswoman, Black American artist whose work deals with very weighty themes. It's race relations or the sort of civil rights structure of the country or the world, whatever else. That's not somebody that you would immediately think of as being material to do a collab with Vans. But yet, it's happening. Exactly. I thought it was really fascinating that it's happening. The artist is not shying away from this collaboration. She's taking part in them. It's a very kind of a nuanced and um, I think fascinating slice of the art world, especially kind of on the borderline, right, with where art world, which so often is its own cloud in the sky, right, like very secluded and elitist. That's where it interacts and overlaps with the real world, right? The other thing that this fits into for me, which is an issue that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and have written about a few times, which is the difference between a living artist having the opportunity to work directly on these licensing deals and have a certain amount of control that they wouldn't if it was just the estate and it's left to the executors to decide what's on one side of the line, what's on the other. It really speaks to this theme of artist empowerment, which I think we've been seeing more and more in the art market. It used to just be that in a lot of ways, artists relied on their dealers to do everything. And it was the gallery that was making the artist. And now more and more, you have these instances where artists are able to build their own careers. And as a result, it's given them the opportunity to have more power to make decisions about 
the right and the wrong way to get their work out there to the public in whatever forms they want. And that, to me, is just a major shift in the way that the business as a whole works. It is a big shift and in a very large part, right? It's a result or byproduct of social media. The fact that so many artists are now discovered on Instagram and so many artists have careers without even having galleries. To me, it really starts to put a different spin on the whole conversation about the general art world resistance to licensing in a lot of ways, because if you start to think about it through the lens of, well, who has the power in the relationship? And we come mm -hmm. out of this very long tradition of dealers or auction houses being the ones that have the power over the artists to make these decisions. And now all of a sudden that gets flipped and the artist is the one who assuming that they're able to build up this kind of career and make this kind of connection with a larger audience, all of a sudden, they don't need those prior intermediaries anymore. They don't need the gallery as much as they did. It's a question of power. And I think it is empowering, probably, to living artists to know that there is this other outlet to their work, you know, to find more audience, to also benefit, like we said earlier, from the work that has been sold that they don't physically have. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. It just makes the conversation about how the art world works much more layered and much more complex than it used to be. And I think that's fascinating. I think you think that's fascinating, but obviously not everybody agrees with us. It has to be done right, because the biggest challenge here is collaborations that tarnish this legacy. You know, because ultimately I think and everybody says that, and that, that's very much up to debate. People will have different opinions, you know, which collaborations do and which don't support the artist's legacy, right? That's something that will continue being discussed and debated. And I think it's a good thing. Well, thanks so much for coming on The Art Angle, Katya. This is fascinating. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Mallory, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.